0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.
1: The student worker strike at UC San Diego reveals a larger problem.
2: The number of graduate students and postdocs has been increasing way faster than the actual number of professors.
1: I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A new analysis of San Diego's affordable housing crisis.
3: Many renters in San Diego are in a pretty precarious situation right now due to the recent ending of COVID tenant protections.
1: Rooftop solar owners make a final plea to state regulators and a wedding ceremony inside San Quentin. That's a head-on Midday Edition.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu.
1: Hundreds of student workers and researchers at UC San Diego joined thousands across the state on Monday in a strike for better pay and benefits. 48,000 graduate students, postdoctoral researchers, and other academic workers left their jobs yesterday after months of failed negotiations with the UC system. Many spoke about having to live on salaries which barely allowed them to pay rent in high-priced cities like San Diego. But experts in academia say the problem runs deeper than that and comes after years of undervaluing student workers who now see a brighter future in careers off-campus. Joining me is Jonathan Wosen, West Coast Biotech and Life Sciences reporter for STAT. And Jonathan, welcome back.
2: So good to be back with you, Maureen.
1: Have the circumstances for this strike been brewing for a long time? Yeah, you know,
2: in a way, they've been brewing for decades. And that was one of the things I explored in a special report for Stat News that ran last week. And we were looking at it from the lens of, you know, biomedicine, life science, research, the whole model of academia, essentially, is that you have labs, of course, and there are professors who run those labs and the people who work and do the bulk of uh, the day-to-day work in those labs are graduate students and postdocs. And the trend that's been clear, actually, for since the 90s and probably since you know uh, even earlier, is that the, the number of graduate students and postdocs has been increasing way faster than the actual number of professors, the actual number of academic spots. So you've got, as a result, this large population of postdocs that are working in labs who will probably never become professors in academia. Some of them will be, most of them won't. And you could say the same of graduate students. And, and these historically are people who've been you know working pretty hard for relatively low wages. That's something people have rationalized for a while by essentially thinking that, well, that's essentially part of the deal. Uh, you know, you don't make a lot initially, but eventually you can get a nice position in academia. But those positions really have not been available for some time.
1: Why are they compensated so poorly? I mean, we've been hearing that most salaries are in the $30,000 range.
2: Yeah, I talked with a lot of a couple of graduate students at UC San Diego who make about $36,000, which is fairly typical. Um, On-campus rent eats up around a third of that. And you can imagine trying to look for an apartment uh, off campus in that La Jolla area is is fairly expensive. There there are a few factors. Uh, You know, one is kind of basic one, the NIH, which does do a lot of, uh, administer a lot of funding for people in life sciences. Uh, you know, they have limited funds and their budget has not grown as quickly in recent years as it has in the past. But I, I also think, you know, I have talked with, with folks who would say that uh, just one of the basic factors in the past has been that you didn't really need to pay uh, graduate students and postdocs a whole lot of money. You know that there weren't as many opportunities in the private sector for these people and so i think some of the tension you're starting to see right now is because in the case of you know let's say biomedical research san diego is a perfect example you've got this huge bustling booming biotech industry i think average wages for somebody in life science out there are around 135 dollars, uh, and you can certainly make six figures out the gate so it, it becomes harder to understand uh, you know why you should do a 53000 three thousand $50,000 postdoc and I, I think that is some of the you know frustration that I'm hearing and seeing from people in, in academic circles right now.
1: What kinds of problems is the exodus of many life science graduate students from universities into the private sector? What kind of problems is that causing universities?
2: I'll give you one example which, is not at UCSD, but basically right across the street. So Scripps Research, you know, world famous institute, home to many Nobel Prize winners, uh, they now have half as many postdoctoral researchers today compared to what they had ten years ago. Actually, it's less than half. I got some numbers from them as part of our recent coverage. So, uh, you know, that's a problem for a couple of reasons. Postdocs are very experienced, very knowledgeable. They know how to work independently they have a lot of ideas. They also help mentor graduate students on a day-to-day basis because they, they're they the ones who know, you know how to troubleshoot an experiment in a way that the professor may not be able to do in as much detail. Uh, so, so certainly places like Scripps and other places like that too are having an issue hiring postdocs. There's no clear data or evidence just yet that that is leading to less productivity in the lab, but it's something that basically almost everyone is complaining about. I've interviewed uh, young professors who just started a faculty position and who actually can't hire postdocs or <laughs> trying to hire a couple people to get their lab up off the ground and have really been struggling to do that. And so that's slowing down their research. And then the, the final point on that quickly is that if you think about it, there are certainly are all these companies that are developing new drugs, but the actual early stage discoveries that become the next vaccine that become the next therapeutic for cancer or sickle cell or what have you a lot of the early stage work in science still happens in academia so one of the questions here is well what what does it mean to have so many people leaving academia given that that's where a lot of the source material for science begins so i think that's something we'll be paying attention to uh, as we follow the story
1: now are these thousands of student workers taking any risks by striking some of them you know
2: are concerned that their advisors could retaliate against them in some way and certainly there have been rumors and questions around you know what if my professor were to to fire me Uh, that's not actually something that should happen based on the contract between the uc system and the union that represents academic workers so on paper that that should not be a concern on the other hand. Striking students are making strike uh, pay, which is $400 a week. So you can do the math there and you know, realize pretty quickly that it's very hard to, to live you know, in most parts of, of California on 400 bucks a week. So financially, there's a risk. Certainly, if you're striking, you're not doing research. If you're not doing research as a graduate student, that pushes back your graduation timeline to get that degree and then you know go out there in the world and, and find yourself a job. Uh, and a couple of students I spoke with have told me that, you know, a, something like, for example, a one month strike or just, on you know, in theory, a one month delay in research can actually set you back several months because it takes so long to set experiments up, to buy materials, you know, reagents, chemicals, to troubleshoot, to plan. So this could certainly be disruptive uh, for a lot of students, We're obviously, you know, just a couple of days into the strikes, so we'll have to see how it plays out, but certainly some you know, things to pay attention to there.
1: I've been speaking with Jonathan Wozen, West Coast biotech and life sciences reporter for STAT. Jonathan, thank you so much.
2: Anytime. Thank you.
1: A brand new affordable housing complex opened in City Heights on Monday. It offers nearly 200 units for both families and seniors to create an intergenerational living environment. City leaders were on hand to celebrate the new building, but the one cloud over the festivities is how long it took to get the new apartments. The complex took seven years to develop. The city's independent budget analyst has released a new report on San Diego's affordable housing crisis. It focuses on the barriers to providing more housing and bringing rents down. Joining me with more on the report is KPBS Metro reporter Jacob Ayer. And Jacob, thank you for joining us.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me on.
1: Now, you were at the official opening of the complex. All of those units are already rented, aren't they?
3: That's right. Uh, they're all rented out and there is a long waiting list already for that unit, which is pretty much the case for most affordable housing complexes across the region.
1: Now, before we get into the affordable housing report, can you remind us who the IBA is and what their role is in making these recommendations for the city?
3: Sure thing. So the IBA actually stands for the independent budget analyst. Their job is to assist city council regarding, you know, budgetary questions and in budgetary decision-making. That means they're going to be providing objective and unbiased analysis, as well as advice to the city council and the public regarding all legislative items, and they have financial and policy impacts to the city of San Diego.
1: You spoke with the head of a statewide community empowerment group about the current state of housing for renters. What did he have to say about the situation?
3: So ACE San Diego director, Jose Lopez, He says that many renters in San Diego are in a pretty precarious situation right now due to the recent ending of covid tenant protections. He told me that many people and families are actually now being forced out of their homes due to no-fault evictions, which previously weren't allowed. And many are having to try and find new housing in an increasingly expensive San Diego rental market. He said many of these families can't even qualify to rent anywhere else due to these high prices. And those folks are either moving out of the region if they're lucky or moving in in semi illegal situations with other folks, or if they're really unlucky, uh, they're moving into various degrees of homelessness.
1: Do we have any sense of how many affordable housing units San Diego needs to meet its demand?
3: So, in the San Diego Association of Governments Regional Housing Needs Assessment Plan, so that's Sandag's plan, they released in 2020, they projected that the county needed just over 170,000 housing units. In this decade so between 2021 and 2029 last year the county built just over 10,000 units and that's well below the pace needed to actually hit that 170,000 mark
1: what were some of the biggest barriers to more affordable housing that this report laid out
3: so the iba's report identified a wide range of different issues that's holding back construction of more affordable housing in the region it's a 26 page report and it's extensive but overall It looks at the issues of permitting and financing, height limits, and funding shortfalls. And some of the recommendations that were made in terms of short and quickly implemented solutions at a low cost include consulting Development Services Department for impacts to the permitting process of proposed city housing regulations, as well as delaying the implementation of new regulations, and that'll allow for time on guidance and training. Another short-term solution was requesting the San Diego Housing Commission to provide the Land Use and Housing Committee uh, an update on their shared efforts so that they can further collaborate.
1: Were any other recommendations made to help solve these issues?
3: Yes, there's a lot of longer-term recommendations as well, and that includes potentially developing a land development code section that will help guide developers on the process of converting office space to affordable single-room occupancy housing, or even identifying next steps for increasing the production of modular housing in San Diego. And both of those are low building cost, affordable housing options. And then lastly, the other long-term suggestions include modernizing how the city hosts its land development code online, redesigning the permit process overall, and then also considering potential ballot proposals to create new revenue streams for affordable housing, or also continuing to remove height limits from additional neighborhoods.
1: What are the next steps now that this report has been released?
3: So the next steps are that city council members are going to read the report and look at the suggestions while the IBA awaits a response from those council members. The city council can choose to pursue some, but they don't necessarily have to pursue all or any of the suggestions. But if they do, and they likely will, they'll have someone from the IBA's office give a presentation on some of their recommendations in an upcoming city council meeting over the next few months.
1: Now, community leaders have said that San Diego can't, quote, build their way out of this crisis, unquote. What do they mean by that?
3: So when talking with uh, San Diego ACE Director Jose Lopez, he said many folks are already feeling the intense effects of the housing market right now. He stressed that without strengthening tenant protections, many low-income families will continue to be displaced over the next few years and decades. He says the current rate of construction on affordable and middle-income housing is also a huge problem, as it's not keeping up with the rising rent prices, and many middle and low-income San Diegans are being forced out of their homes without many options, if any, on where to go.
1: I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Jacob Ayer, and Jacob, thank you so much.
3: Thank you for having me on.
1: The uncertainty hanging over California's solar marketplace is beginning to clear now that regulators have unveiled their plan to reshape solar rules. KPBS Environment Reporter Eric Anderson says regulators are hearing from the affected parties on Wednesday, the last chance for public input before the commission votes next month.
5: Belinda Martinez moved into one of Oceanside's older neighborhoods in 2003 after finding a Spanish colonial cottage on a rare oversized lot.
1: We fell in love with the neighborhood, the, 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 our neighbors.
5: Martinez added 13 solar panels just over five years ago. The solar array is located on the home's flat roof, keeping it mostly hidden from the street. But the impact is very visible on the Martinez's electricity bill.
1: We've only seen credit on our utility, so basically we have no electrical bill.
5: That bill credit comes from California's Net Energy Metering Regulations. Initially, utilities had to pay homeowners the retail rate for electricity generated by rooftop solar. The system was adjusted in 2017. Solar owners had to enroll in time-of-use rate plans, and utilities paid a few pennies less for a kilowatt-hour of electricity they bought from solar owners.
1: We're putting out energy to them. They pay a certain fee for that energy output, and we're paying... Uh, We're obviously paying for the energy in the peak period, and it still allows us to have credits.
5: But changes proposed last December would have upended that system. A utility-backed plan slashed the value of rooftop-generated electricity by 80 percent, and the plan had steep mandatory grid access fees. The outcry was immediate. After a few weeks of blistering public dissent, regulators put that plan on hold. The Solar Rights Alliance's Dave Rosenfeld says solar advocates cheered the delay, but it was not time to ring the victory bell.
2: We knew that just because the CPUC paused didn't mean that they were convinced that they were wrong. And the governor did say the changes needed to be made, but he didn't say what those changes ought to be. Well, that's a pretty wide spread.
5: Solar supporters spent this year shining a light on the threat posed by the December proposal. Protesters rallied at utility offices around the state including San Diego-based Semper Energy's headquarters in July.
6: Please reverse course on your attack campaign on rooftop solar and chart a new path. that collaborates A Sacramento
5: rally in October appealed to Governor Gavin Newsom, asking him to protect the solar industry's 67,000 jobs. Rosenfeld says advocates lobbied lawmakers and for months they flooded CPUC meetings with public comment.
2: It's very rare for the regular public to interact directly with the CPUC. For most of the time that this campaign has been going on too, we've been in a COVID type of environment where the CPUC wasn't even meeting in person. It wasn't until the spring that there was even an in-person meeting where the CPUC would be in a position to look the public in the eye and hear from members of the public.
5: The California Solar and Storage Association's Bernadette Del Chiaro says economics are at the heart of the solar issue. Advocates want to make sure homeowners see financial benefits for their solar arrays.
1: If you put a $25,000 into a solar system, how many years does it take for that upfront investment to pay for itself in savings, in utility bill savings?
5: Remove the financial incentive, supporters say, and solar installations grind to a halt. But the state's investor-owned utilities say grid expenses are being shifted to non-solar customers. Kathy Fairbanks is with the utility-funded group Affordable Access for All.
7: We want the CPUC to reform the net energy metering program to make sure that everyone is paying their fair share.
5: The new proposed rules didn't please either side. The onerous grid connection fee is gone, but the value of electricity generated by rooftop solar is being slashed. Pro-utility groups say non-solar customers still pay an unfair share of baked-in grid costs, Solar industry backers say removing financial incentives will slow solar adoption, which is bad for the state's climate goals. Regulators could tweak the plan based on the Wednesday hearing, and they remain poised to make a final decision in mid-December.
1: That story was by KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson, and he joins me now. And Eric, welcome.
5: Thank you, Maureen.
1: Rooftop solar customers have been waiting on tenterhooks for almost a year for these new net energy metering rules. Has the uncertainty already affected the rooftop solar market?
5: Well, I think uncertainty creates uh, exactly that in any kind of a business arena. When you don't quite know what the new rules are going to be, there will be an impact on the way people do business, uh, the way people make decisions moving forward.
1: Now, how would the rules the CPUC is now considering affect rooftop solar users? And I mean, for instance, would someone like the woman in Oceanside you spoke with, who's only seen credit on her energy bills, now have to pay?
5: Um, No. In fact, uh, one of the elements in this new proposal is that the original people who have already installed solar... Uh, will be able to live by the terms of the deals they signed when they installed their solar systems. So if you were one of the earlier adopters uh, and you were one of the NEM 1.0, Net Energy Metering 1.0 customers, and your 20 years have not expired yet, you would still operate under the rules of that system. If you came on board after 2017 and are one of the Net Energy Metering 2.0 customers, Uh, The terms of your agreement, your net energy metering agreement with your utility would stay the same uh, for 20 years before you would be switched to any other kind of system. And if you decide now to install solar and these rules are adopted, uh, once they go into effect you would have to observe the rules that the CPUC is now considering adopting.
1: The grid connection fees are gone from this new proposal. Would those fees only have affected new solar users?
5: Well, it was a little bit up in the air. Under the old plan, what they would have done is taken that 20-year contract or agreement that solar owners had and shortened that to 15 years. So you would have been moved onto the new system more quickly under that unsuccessful proposal that was released almost a year ago now.
1: Do the utility companies ever get more specific on what grid expenses are? Is this maintenance, expansion, or what?
5: This is a great question. It's uh, really gets to the fundamental idea of what we pay when we pay a uh, per kilowatt hour rate for electricity. You know, less than half of that cost uh, is just to provide and move that electricity. The other half of that cost is what the utilities refer to in a general sense as grid maintenance fees, and that's a lot of things. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, The San Onofre nuclear power plant hasn't generated electricity for years, but there was a costly upgrade shortly before it was shut down that was supposed to extend the life of that plant. Uh, And I mean a multi-billion dollar upgrade. The plant only ran for a year or two before they found some engineering problems and had to shut it down. But the bill for that upgrade is still being figured into your utility rates. So this is something that happened 10, 15 years ago, And we're going to be paying for that in our utility rates for years to come. So it's not just for maintenance of the power lines. It's for the installation of new infrastructure like transformers. It's for the installation of transmission lines. It's for the installation of battery storage facilities. And it's to pay off costs that currently exist that were incurred years ago.
1: Now, why would they have to slash the credits they give homeowners for the solar energy they produce? Why not just a flat fee for grid expenses?
5: One thing that they did in this proposal, by slashing the value of rooftop solar, they're giving basically a financial break to the utilities. It's kind of a financial concession. Uh, You could look at it, I don't know if this is what they were thinking when they came up with this plan, but you could look at it like, well, we think that the, the, the grid connection fees that are mandatory and static aren't the best way to go, but utilities need some more money to kind of balance the scale. So what we'll do is we'll cut the value of the solar that's generated on a rooftop. And what that basically means is that if you have a solar system on your rooftop and you s- produce extra electricity in the middle of the day and you sell it back to the grid, you would sell it back to the grid at around eight cents to five cents a kilowatt hour. The utility can take that generated electricity and sell it to your neighbor at the retail price. It could be as high as 30 cents an hour, a kilowatt hour, depending on, on what the rate that pays. And and that cushion, that difference, is kind of a concession to the utilities to recoup some of the costs uh, that they say that you know they're paying as more people adopt rooftop solar.
1: Now, you report that rooftop solar users have been on a campaign to stop these new rules, lobbying lawmakers and and more. Do you think those efforts have been successful so far?
5: Well, I think you're seeing that they have had an impact. It was almost uh, from the get-go. I think the CPUC unveiled their proposal on December 13th of last year, and almost right away, there was outrage. Uh, The governor made some short comments in January, and then it was kind of the long haul for the solar industry advocates. They decided to be very proactive, keep the issue in front of the general public, keep the issue in front of regulators and lawmakers. And they really have spent the last year. And I think that's why you see the fact that this solar tax, as they referred to it, this mandatory flat grid connection fee is not part of this new proposal. Although they're not very happy about the reduction in the value of uh, electricity generated by rooftop solar, and I think you'll hear them say that when they talk in front of the commissioners tomorrow.
1: I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, thanks. My pleasure. The USO, the iconic supporter organization for service members and their families, has quietly been closing dozens of airport lounges and on-base hospitality centers. But it's also opening others, including some in the military's most remote locations. Jay Price reports for the American Homefront Project.
0: The 81-year-old USO is known for traditions, like care packages, airport lounges for transiting troops, and celebrity entertainment tours. But it has modern challenges. Its budget is down, in part because the number of Americans and potential donors with ties to the military has been shrinking. And it's dealing with shifts in where troops are deployed and what they need in the digital age.
7: We're trying to provide an impact in the places and for those service members
2: that need us the most.
0: USO Chief Operating Officer Alan Reyes says the changes are part of a long-range strategic plan. It will close about 40 of those centers where troops can rest, grab a cold soda, play games, and watch TV, many of them at smaller domestic airports. But it's opening 28 new centers, several in places where stress is especially high.
7: We do pride ourselves of the fact that we have as a global organization the opportunity to reach millions and millions of service members and families, but we want to make sure that we are reaching those that need us the most. And oftentimes they are in more remote locations.
0: Many of the new centers are in Eastern Europe where troops are deployed in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Other new sites include Fort Irwin and the Mojave Desert, and the military's most isolated installation, Thule Air Force Base in Northern Greenland, where temperatures can drop under 20 below, and there's total darkness for months each winter.
7: So one that is fairly remote, away from a lot of creature comforts.
0: The USO's mission is to boost morale by keeping service members connected with their families, home, and country. In short, it's a mental health organization. And I could attest to that because I was dealing with depression. Sergeant Darian Wolf visits the bustling Fort Bragg USO almost daily. He was hanging out in a lounge area one recent day, sipping a Sprite, as other soldiers used computers, played video games, or just sprawled on a couch watching TV. Just coming here got me a chance to kind of get out of that, old, you know, kind of relax. Definitely feels like home, so that's why I kept coming back. He found the same comfort in Poland on a recent deployment, the 82nd Airborne Division soldiers had been ordered to leave their phones at home, but the USO provided secure call centers as well as its usual array of couches, games, and snacks. My whole team was gone every week. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, today we're at long been 17 miles northeast of Saigon. Bob Hope. You can't mention the USO without at least a nod to its most famous touring act. I don't care if Charlie is watching or I'm giving away military secrets. We're on live TV today and we need the rating. (laughs) That was 1969 and Hope, who did USO shows for half a century, was performing for a crowd of thousands. The USO is still sending celebrities out on tour, but it's added another approach.
7: And
3: if you're a soccer fan or football, as they say in Europe, you're going to enjoy our guest today, star.
0: That recent guest was Club U.S. soccer and star and Christian USA, Pulisic. Instead of putting him on tour, the USO set up a live video appearance.
2: We have two friendly matches coming up here the next week to get us prepared for the World Cup.
0: Pulisic, in Germany chatted with soldiers in Turkey, Kuwait, and Qatar online, where Reyes says young troops are used to spending time.
7: That does not mean we're going to stop sending tours to bases and places as well. But we now have a way to serve in both capacities.
0: The video meetups aren't the same as joining the crowd at a live USO show. But Reyes says they can be more intimate, allowing personal connections with the celebrities. And they still serve that USO mission, cheering up troops who are far from home. I'm Jay Price reporting.
1: This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Bob Woodruff Foundation.
4: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
1: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. Jade Heinman is away today. A maximum security prison may not be the first place you'd think of to celebrate a wedding but yesterday we introduced you to Edmund Richardson, who was serving a life sentence at San Quentin State Prison. In this excerpt from the podcast, Uncuffed, we get to listen in on Richardson's wedding ceremony to his now wife, Evelina, held in the visiting room at San Quentin. And host Greg Eskridge speaks to Evelina about finding love with someone who is incarcerated.
8: Wow. Wedding day, man. So, do you have any jitters?
7: I'm nervous right now. I haven't ate nothing, I haven't drank no coffee, but I'm shaking like a motorbike.
8: <laughs> we're just now leaving the studio. Me, Edmund and Tom, we're going up there to the to the visiting room. You're looking good. You're shining like new money. I see you got your Stacy Adams on
7: sir you know what I'm saying how to gotta dress and impress.
8: Evan so how did you sleep last night?
7: I stayed up late last night going over my vows. went to sleep about 11, 11:30. Got up early in the morning just with this day on my mind. but I slept I, I feel energized I, I feel I feel rested. I feel at peace.
8: Well, Edmund, we're in the courtyard right now, and uh, we're about 30 feet away from the visiting room, man.
7: (laughs) Literally 30 feet away, man. So I'm ready. Regardless of the anxiety, I'm just going to use that as positive energy to get me through this, man. And I got y'all with me, so I know everything's going to be good. You got me nervous. I'm nervous. I'm nervous for you. Why are you nervous?
8: Yeah, I'm nervous because you're nervous. I'm nervous because this is a big day. I know this is a, this is a huge moment, man. Yeah. It's your last chance to uh,
7: <laughs> turn around. What's that called? Run away, <laughs> runaway <laughs> groom. That's not gonna happen today.
8: All right, we are now inside of the visiting room. So let's see where we're gonna. Why is it so dark in here? Hold up, hold up, hold up. Let's pause for a second. The vision room is not normally this dark, so let me explain to you how it truly is on the weekend. Walking into the vision room here at San Quentin, the first thing you're gonna see is a bunch of people walking around, little children running around. I mean, this place is packed. On the far other end of the vision room, there's a vending machine area where people go in and buy their popcorn and their chicken wings and their soda pops and water. And right across from the vision room, from the vending machine area, is the kids room. There are children's games, children's books. You have mothers and fathers and grandfathers, just family, it's just a really great family scene. So the process of getting married is definitely not easy inside a prison. First of all, you have to find someone willing to marry you. You fill out about 10 sheets of paper, send it to your spouse, and then your spouse sends it back to a wedding coordinator. And her job is to coordinate all the marriages here in San Quentin Prison. And you can get married anytime you want, as long as it's on a Friday morning. Now, when a person gets married, they can usually bring in approximately five people who are actually approved on their visiting list to come in and witness the wedding. Now, when it comes down to the ceremony, there's actually someone here to officiate it and they're going to have a binder. And within this binder, you're going to have options of the ceremony you may want. So you can say you want a Christian wedding, whatever it is you want. He's going to turn to that page and the ceremony is going to begin.
6: They have asked that we gather today so you might share with them this special moment as they join lives together in marriage. Marriage is the partnership born from the deep love bond of two people who've decided to build their lives together. A family is a collective working together to create and build life, caring for one another, finding a way to prosper together, all done with love, truth, and trust. We are here there to today then to with us the bonding of Evelyn and Edmund. Oh. Start with here. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
9: Edmund Warren Richardson, my intelligent, my driven, my most favorite person. You make love feel so effortless. There's nothing that could make me happier than standing before you today knowing that I get to become your wife, because I know the commitment you place on marriage, and I know that today you're choosing me for life. Your love has taught me unbelievable resilience. Your love has shown me that no matter what unimaginable injustice life throws at us, that we will be okay. Your love has shown me we can withstand the ups and the downs. Together, your passion, your determination, and your commitment have kept us together. And my goal has always been just to keep up with you, so I would never have to be without you again. I promise to protect you and make sure every single day you know your life matters, because it does. I'll stand with you in this fight and whatever comes next. I promise to always watch Saturday Night Live with you and, <laughs> and even to laugh when I don't understand the jokes. And I wrote all of this and realized I'm not even sure these are vows. Sometimes I'll be scared and sometimes I'll be brave, but I'll always be there.
6: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it <be> your turn.
7: Evelina. <laughs> you asked me, how do you know I'm the one? I responded, it is not a feeling, it is not something that I could put into words, but it's a deep-seated knowing. A knowing that I believe is divine in nature that came from a prayer answered. I was at a point in my life where I had given up, lost hope in my future in love and any meaningful relationships. It, it was one sleepless night, me alone with my thoughts, pleading with God for someone like you. A outspoken, smart and beautiful woman who was full of life someone who knows her faults and is willing to face them. I see you, all of you. I vow to be your safe space in times of need. You are the love of my life. You are my best friend
6: and I love you so much. (laughs) You will now seal your promises to each other by the giving and receiving of the rings. Evelyn, repeat after me, Edmund. Edmund. you? With this ring, I join my life with yours.
9: With this ring, I join my life with yours.
6: Edmund, repeat after me. Evelyn, with this ring, I join my life with yours. Evelina, with this ring, I join my life with yours. By the power vested in me by the state of California, I now pronounce you husband and wife. I now ask you to seal the promises you have made with each other this day with a kiss. (laughs)
8: Your daughter just got married, tell me to talk about that.
9: I I didn't expect it to be this emotional, but it was beautiful. Um, Very untraditional, (laughs) but beautiful. I think Edmund brings the calm to her storm so as long as Edmund can be that peace um, she will um, she will be there for him and they can survive yeah love um, love definitely finds its way
8: I see I see your emotional mom I mean <laughs> what what is uh what is what is bringing what is bringing those emotions to you
9: Um, Just the fact of um, what Edmund's going through. Yeah, because we leave, but he has to stay. My name's Avelina Richardson now. (laughs) And um, I got married to Edmund, who's a part of this podcast today. (laughs) When Edmund and I first started corresponding, I think I was like, this man is crazy because he, one of his first letters, he was like, when I'm released, you can meet me at the gate and we can get married that day. Um, Thanks. And I was like, who is this person who, he was just like really straightforward and I think I was like really surprised and confused at how somebody Thought that we were going to get married. <laughs> and now we are married, but. <laughs> I think when we first started corresponding, I told him, he sent me like a visiting form and I was like, oh, I'm not going to visit you actually. <laughs> um, because I spent a lot of time visiting my dad and my brother. And I know like what having, the like the weight of a life sentence means. And then when we started Becoming like romantically involved. I think I thought a lot about what I was taking on because being with somebody who's incarcerated is heavy, and I wanted to make sure that I was able to hold what it meant and be like supportive of Edmund and also still sustain who I am out here. We had started talking about getting married in 2021. I knew that it was going to happen during visiting, but I didn't know anything about when. One day, I went to go buy something out of the vending machines and he started like walking towards me at the vending machines and I was like, "Oh my god, what are you doing?" like cuz there's like an out of bounds line and he just kept walking towards me and then he per- like got on one knee and proposed to me. Yeah, I had no idea, and it was really special because I've always told Edmund that I wanted to be proposed to, like, in private. And there's really not a way to do that in the visiting room, but he made it, like, as private and as special and, like, a moment between just us. Um, He did that as much as he could, and it was really special and sweet. (laughs) My ring, Edmund picked out with one of my best friends. Yeah, and then the ring I gave Edmund, um, I have another brother who passed away, and it was his ring, and um, I think he would have really loved Edmund a lot. Edmund was like, when we started corresponding one time, he was like, so have you Googled me? And I was like, no, why would I do that? <laughs> um, then he told me that he had a life sentence after that, and I think his like earliest eligible parole date was like 2034, and that's still what it is. It's still pretty far away. I I think I had to work through that on my own, but I accepted it. Uh, I think when you imagine your wedding when you're really young, you don't imagine it in a place like this. But I think that I still feel like really in love and really happy. And I feel like this overwhelming, like sense of just like comfort because I know I just like, made a decision with my person, and if you know who Edmund is, then you know Edmund deserves to be free. And yeah, I know that he will be.
4: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen.